Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Numbers. Today, returning to our study through this book and picking up in chapter 5. Numbers chapter 5. Uh, you should be uh, aware, I'd like to make you know, uh, that this is a difficult passage. Uh, not because it's hard to understand, uh, but in fact because it's very clear and because in its clarity it doesn't sit well with many of the modern sensibilities of our contemporary culture. Nevertheless, this is God's word, and we are committed to hearing it and allowing the Lord to be true, though every man a liar. And so we are looking today in Numbers chapter 5, and we're going to hear uh, the word of the Lord come through Moses to address three potential issues as this camp moves throughout the wilderness and, uh, and into the promised land. The first issue is what to do about those who are unclean in the camp. The second issue is what to do about fraud and restitution. And the third issue is what to think about suspicions in a marriage and how to deal with those issues. You can find those and, and see that as we move along. That that's how the passage will, uh, will open up. Uh, we'll also look at it uh, in, those, uh, in those ways. So Numbers chapter 5 today, we're going to read the entire chapter and then look at it together. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord again in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Lord our God, we thank you for this, your word. We pray that as we come to it, you would give us humble hearts to be under the authority of your word, to recognize that you are our God and you have called us to be your people. You give us this word. You also give us your Holy Spirit that we might understand it and apply it. Father, we pray that you'd give us wisdom in doing that today, that we would hear from your word and that you would teach us uh, how it touches on our lives and what you call us to do in response to it. Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that you would pour it into our hearts today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You're now God's word as we find it in Numbers chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous, or has a discharge, and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so, and put them outside the camp. As the Lord said to Moses, so the people of Israel did. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. When a man or woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord, and that person realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sin that he has committed. And he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it and giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. But if the man has no next of kin to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for wrong shall go to the Lord for the priest, in addition to the ram of atonement with which atonement is made for him. And every contribution... All the holy donations of the people of Israel, which they bring to the priest, shall be his. Each one shall keep his holy donations. Whatever anyone gives to the priest shall be his. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, 
If a man lies with her sexually and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and she's undetected, though she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her since she was not taken in the act, and if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he's jealous of his wife who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife, though she has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest and bring the offering required of her, a tenth of an ephah of barley flour. He shall pour no oil on it and put no frankincense on it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of remembrance, bringing iniquity to remembrance. And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. And the priest shall take holy water in an earthenware vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. And the priest shall set the woman before the Lord and unbind the hair of the woman's head and place in her hands the grain offering of remembrance, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And in his hand the priest shall have the water of bitterness that brings the curse. Then the priest shall make her take an oath, saying, If no man has lain with you, and if you have not turned aside to uncleanness while you were under your husband's authority, be free from this water of bitterness that brings the curse. But if you have gone astray, though you are under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then let the priest make the woman take the oath of the curse and say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people when the Lord makes your thigh fall away and your body to swell. May this water that brings the curse pass into your bowels and make your womb swell and your thigh fall away. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. Then the priest shall write these curses in a book and wash them off into the water of bitterness. And he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings the curse, and the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain. And the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy out of the woman's hand and shall wave the grain offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the grain offering as its memorial portion and burn it on the altar and afterwards shall make the woman drink the water. And when he has made her drink the water, then if she has defiled herself and has broken faith with her husband, the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain. And her womb shall swell and her thigh shall fall away, and the woman shall become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and shall conceive children. This is the law in cases of jealousy. When a wife, though under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself, or when the spirit of jealousy comes over a man and he's jealous of his wife, then he shall set the woman before the Lord, and the priest shall carry out for her all this law. The man shall be free from iniquity, but the woman shall bear her iniquity. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. I know that, uh, that some of you are sports fans. I am not. That's okay. Please, uh, no judgment. I know some of you are sports fans, and uh, if you're a sports fan, you know that the world of sports is also a world of superstitions, tiny little rituals uh, that are supposed to be filled with uh, cosmic power, little uh, ceremonies, tiny attempts to appease the playoff gods. 
you know what they are. In, in hockey, it's the beard that you're not allowed to shave until your team gets knocked out. Right? In, in baseball, it's the rally cap. It's things like uh, Tiger Woods wearing a red shirt every time he plays on a Sunday. It's Serena Williams wearing the same pair of dirty socks for an entire tennis tournament. It's superstition. It's ceremonies that exist solely for the purpose of keeping the other team's ceremonies from putting the hokey on your favorite players. And quite frankly, those of us who don't follow sports, we think it's all a bit silly. Uh, we do, however, understand that it's uh, part of the fun of all of it. Uh, we realize, uh, of course, that, that nobody actually believes in the hokey. So we hope nobody believes in it. Uh, we realize that, that nobody's actually worshiping any so-called playoff gods. And so when you're at Fenway and the socks are behind, you look around yourself and well, you turn your hat inside out as well. Because, well, not because you believe in it, because that's what everybody's doing. It's just part of the fun. Well, when you read Numbers chapter 5, you get the sense that there are some people who would probably like to put these things roughly on the same level as Serena's dirty socks. People who think that, ah, that's all just a bunch of superstition. People who look at you sort of sideways and, and say, but you don't actually believe that stuff. Do you? I mean, all this... All this talk about ceremonial uncleanness because you touched a dead body, all this stuff about water and dust and curses and adultery, uh, you don't actually believe that. And deep down they get the sense that not even the people who say they believe it actually believe it. And what it means is that how you read a chapter like this one, how you read Numbers chapter 5 is incredibly important. Not just what you read here, but how you read this. How you read Numbers chapter 5 is a dividing line. It's a line that divides those who believe that God exists and those who would rather he doesn't. It divides those who will allow God to speak for himself and those who would rather that he keeps silent. How you read Numbers chapter 5 reveals whether you want a God who lives in your world or whether you're willing to acknowledge that you live in his. I mentioned already that the chapter breaks down into three tidy little sections. In each section, there is a significant lesson for us to learn about what it means to live in God's world. The first lesson is that we need to take God's holiness seriously. Take God's holiness Seriously, read again verses 1 and 2. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who's leprous or has a discharge and everyone who's unclean through contact with the dead. This is an extension of everything we've already seen in the first four chapters of Numbers. We've seen censuses and we've seen camp arrangements. We've seen uh, duties given to particular tribes. And we've seen areas in the camp where even those particular holy tribes weren't allowed to go, where the unauthorized were not allowed to pass. Always under the surface, and everything we have seen is this seriousness of the holiness of God among the people that he's chosen. And holiness largely in numbers so far, has shown up in separation. That which is 
holy is separated from that which is not. That which is clean is separated from that which defiles, and that same idea carries through here. Make a separation, make a distinction, the Lord is saying, between those who can come near and those who cannot. Verse 3, you shall put out both male and female out of the camp, placing them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. We're talking about holiness here, even though the word itself doesn't show up. So you need to understand that when we talk about holiness, we're talking about a relative term. That is, we're talking about anything that is related to God. We talk about things being holy or unholy insofar as they compare to God, who is the absolute standard of holiness because he is absolutely separated from that which is unclean. Holiness is relative. It describes something set apart by God. It describes something set apart for God. It describes something that is dedicated to God's service simply because he has chosen it. Moses was out in the wilderness tending the sheep of his father-in-law Jethro, and he came upon a bush that was burning and wasn't being consumed. And so he turned aside to see this thing, and the Lord said to him, Do not come near. He said, Take your sandals off of your feet, for the place in which you're standing is holy ground. The Lord said, This ground, this plot of land right here, is holy. Why? Well, not because that ground was different from the other ground. Not because there was some special uh, blend of minerals that you could only find right there. That ground was holy because the Lord chose it. Because he separated it. Because he made it his own. The same idea is at work in this passage. The Lord has chosen this people. And now holiness drives all of the details of everything that they do in the camp. And when we understand that... It helps us to resist this urge uh, to, to make these laws about something less than holiness. The urge sometimes is to make these laws about something that we can point to and we can say, well, this is practical. That's all it is. God is, uh, is giving his people practical things, but giving them in a way that they'll accept it. There are people who reduce these things to this level. They like to point out that the three classes in verse 2 are those with communicable diseases, right? Uh, those that are leprous, those that have discharges, those that may have touched the dead body, and now they've got an infection that might be spread among the people. You notice that people with disabilities are not excluded. The blind and the lame are, are not cast out of God's camp. It's not about... Uh, being sick, it's not being infirm, it's not about being old or, 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 or damaged in some way, it's about being infectious. And so some folks rationalize this to say that God is merely giving public health advice. And he's giving it in a way that they can receive it before they understood viruses and bacteria. Now it's, it's true, actually, that there was a practical outcome to this law. It did establish a quarantine zone. And having come out of COVID, we're all too familiar with quarantine and with separation and social distance. And, and it did establish that sort of thing, a place where uh, the viruses and the infections could be kept out of the camp in the hopes that they wouldn't spread inside the camp. It does seem very practical. But the point of this law was more than practicality. The purpose of this law was 
holiness. The Lord had chosen this people. The Lord had arranged the camp. The whole thing belonged to him. And he gets to choose what gets in and who has to stay out. So the Lord says, put them out, that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. So we have to acknowledge that it was probably an inconvenience to do this sort of thing. Speaking in practical terms. It, it meant separating people from the rest of the community. People who might be sick, but then again, people who might turn out not to be sick after all. It's true that, that some people would probably feel bad for being excluded. It's true that families would be separated, sometimes for a time, sometimes forever. And we can think of all sorts of practical, personal reasons why you might not want to go through with this. Why you might not want to pay attention to this law. But the law wasn't about what we think is practical so much as it was about what God says is right. What he declares to be holy. This law is about allowing the Lord to set the standards for his people. Now, of course, from, from where we stand, New Testament believers, we are thankful to the Lord that the church is no longer bound by the specifics of this regulation. Right Through Christ Jesus, there is no longer any such thing as ceremonial uncleanness among believers. So our Savior came near. Our Savior handled the lepers. Our Savior raised the dead. Our Savior healed the woman with the issue of blood with his own touch. He came near, and Gordon Wenham says that he did it all to show that those conditions which for centuries had separated even the elect people from God no longer mattered. The kingdom of God is open to all who repent and believe, and we say yes and amen. There is no uncleanness. But we still have to say that the Lord gets to determine what is holy. We still have to say that our practical concerns are at best a secondary issue. How many calls to, to biblical holiness do you think we could manage to explain away if we simply tried to categorize it all in terms of what we think is practical? 1 Corinthians chapter 6 tells us to flee sexual immorality, but, you know, we've found ways around that now, haven't we? We've figured out, mostly anyway, how to mitigate the effects of such things. We've we found how to, uh, to reduce the, the chance of infections, what to do about planned pregnancies. We, uh, we have medications, and we have protections, and we have enlightened sensibilities. And by the way, you know, people are getting married so much later that it's not very practical to wait until that happens for these sorts of things. So no thank you. I, I don't think I want that call to holiness. I'll stick with what I think is practical. Jesus told us that whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. But you know, my therapist says that it really is quite healthy to have a cathartic experience every once in a while. It's good for me. It's good for my psyche. It helps me to feel affirmed. It helps me to feel validated when I can write down in detail all the ways that that other person has harmed me and probably to cut them out of my life completely because of it. That's what's practical for me. 
And God's enduring moral law tells us to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. But we say, you know, Moses probably never got an email from his boss in the middle of a Sunday that he had to respond to right away. That doesn't seem very practical. How many calls to holiness could we ignore if we reduce them to what we think is practical? Be willing to bet if we try hard enough, we can get rid of all of them. The Lord is telling us, instead of playing that game, we should simply take his holiness seriously. We should simply allow his choice to direct our lives. And so the call is to take God's holiness seriously. The second lesson here is to treat God's people fairly. Treat God's people fairly. Now, this first issue uh, in this chapter that we just discussed, it it dealt with uh, things that bring uncleanness into God's camp. In verses 5 to 10, we're dealing with things that sow discord among God's people. But notice that even here, uh, the Lord is reminding us that our practical actions have have spiritual ramifications, don't they? Take a look at verses 6 and 7. Speak to the people of Israel... When a man or woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord, and that person realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sin that he's committed, and he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it and giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. The potential crime is obvious. There's some kind of fraud. There's some kind of lie. There's some kind of cheat that has left somebody else with a financial burden. You've taken something that didn't belong to you. You've used something that you shouldn't. And now somebody else is left holding the bill. And yet the Lord says that this sin is something by which he says his people break faith with the Lord. It's a reminder to us. God is not just the God over his people. God is the God between his people. It's a reminder that when we enter into covenant with the Lord, we also enter into union with his body, the church. That we are in community together. And so each believer is called to reflect God's truth and God's justice and God's equity and God's fairness of dealing with one another. We're supposed to show forth those things to one another in the ways that we interact with the things that we have. That was the call to the Israelites here. As they wandered through the desert, there was no room for pilfering or cheating. As they settled into the promised land, they should apply that proverb that we heard today, not to move the ancient landmark, not to wait until nobody was looking and try to enlarge their field just a little bit, and each year they would get one more row for their crops until finally they've taken half of their neighbor's property. Those things should not happen. God's people are called to be honest, We're called to be fair with our brothers and sisters, and not because it's good economic policy. Do you notice the cost that's associated with making good on these things? The Lord gives a defined and prescripted 20% that you had to add if you were going to make things right. It was costly to do what was right, and yet the Lord called his people to do that. He called them to fairness. He called them to fairness because by treating one another fairly, we keep faith with the Lord. It also means, though, that we have to extend this principle outside the church as well. 
you know that that's how it works out. We can't draw a tiny little circle and say, well, these people are believers, so I need to be kind and fair with them, but those people I can cheat all I want because they're not a part of the people of God. No, we have to take that fairness and extend it as far as our reach extends. This is a part of our witness. that We're called to be honest with everyone. I wonder if you've ever met one of those professing Christians one of those who always feels the impulse to speak to the manager because they are trying to get some extra special discount. They think that by, by needling a little bit, by nickel and diming a little bit, they can always get some extra deduction on something that's probably already cheaper than it should be anyway. I wonder if you've ever been out with a professing Christian in a restaurant, and even for good service, they tip so poorly that you're tempted to leave a $10 bill on the table just to make up the difference. If you know the feeling, that sort of knee-jerk reaction to those things, then it only proves that you already know how this principle works. It proves that our spiritual lives are not the sort of thing that can be privatized. It means that you already know that how we keep faith with the Lord shows up in how we treat one another fairly. Now, we also recognize in, in this passage that, that not everybody has the resources to be lavish. Right? That, that's why this is not a call to generosity. It's not a call to extravagance. It's not a call to throwing money around to everyone. It's simply a call to do what is right. The principle is simple. If you've stolen something, restore it. If you've cheated someone, Pay them back. If you have lied your way into a better situation for yourself, own up to the truth and take the consequences of where it might leave you, even if it's costly. And by the way, if you can't pay back the person you cheated, pay their family. If you can't pay back their family, pay the Lord. It's not extravagance. It's not wasteful. It's just doing the right thing. It's the sort of thing that Christians, of all people, ought to be completely committed to. Now, I know as well as you do that there are Christians, maybe I'm one of them in my heart of hearts, there are Christians that want to make our rationalizations for these things. There are Christians that want to point to the cross of Jesus Christ and say, you know, what's, what's covered is covered, isn't it? Why pay back what Jesus has already forgiven? Oh, no, 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 there's forgiveness full and free in the Lord, and so this restitution, well, that goes away with uncleanness, doesn't it? We can put that in the rearview mirror as something we don't need to think about anymore. Well, so far as your debt to the Lord goes, it's true. The cross of Jesus Christ covers every lie and every cheat and every fraud and every wrong you've ever committed if you repent and believe in the gospel. Everything is covered, and every debt is paid. But I think Doug Wilson puts it pretty plainly. He said, if you stole $20 and then you became a Christian, the cross does not make that $20 yours. Now, there's a difference, isn't there? There's a difference between forgiveness and restitution. There is a distinction between your debt to your Lord and your debt to your neighbor. That's why in this passage, God calls his people to deal with both sides of the equation. Offer up a sacrifice and pay back what you owe. 
Make confession to the Lord so that he will cover the guilt of your sin, but also pay back your neighbor because you ought to be dealing fairly. According to uh, Kentucky Living Magazine, not the sort of thing I normally read, but you know, uh, Kentucky Living Magazine, Christmas Eve, 1992. Clay and Velma Likens noticed a large object wrapped in plastic down at the end of their driveway. Clay went outside to turn on the Christmas lights, and he saw it there. He certainly hadn't left it there. And upon investigation, they took off the plastic, and they found uh, a wicker rocking chair. And on that wicker rocking chair was a letter. And here's what it said. To whom it may concern, approximately 13 to 17 years ago, my husband stole this wicker rocking chair from this porch of this house. I've since been divorced from my husband, and I've also been born again in Jesus. My life has completely changed, and I want to undo any wrongdoing to the best of my ability. I know this chair is not in the same condition it was when it was stolen. I apologize. I realize the cowardly fashion in which I'm returning this, but I will not bother you again. Please forgive us sincerely. No name, but you get the idea. It's true. If you are in Christ, your sins have been paid for. doesn't matter who you've cheated or where you have wronged. The Lord is the one who has the resources to be incredibly lavish. He has the sin of his Son, our spotless and perfect Savior, that covers every debt we have ever committed and incurred against him. But if we are in Christ, and specifically if we are in Christ, we should be committed to living out God's generosity with the people around us. You recall that in Luke chapter 19, there was this short, very rich tax collector who was converted. And you remember what he said, verse 8 of Luke 19, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. What does Jesus say? Now, oh, Zacchaeus, don't worry about that. Don't do, no, 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 that's Old Testament, Zacchaeus. We're doing a new thing. I'm here now. It's all covered, Zacchaeus. Don't worry about it. Is that what Jesus says to Zacchaeus? No. Luke chapter 19, verse 9, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. Zacchaeus was not saved by making restitution. He hadn't even paid it back yet. But when he was saved, it was the first thing he wanted to do. Because he was the Lord's, he wanted to treat God's people fairly. And if you are in Christ, if you live in God's world, you should want to do the same. Now there's one more lesson here. And that is that we ought to trust God's judgment completely. It doesn't always happen, but this week there's a sort of parallelism, so... I'm proud of myself. I hope you are as well. Uh, we need to trust God's judgment completely. Now, verse, uh, verse 11, we come at last to the longest and to the most controversial portion of our text. It's a text that deals with suspicions that can't be proven, or, or maybe even fears that might be unfounded. At the end, verse 29 we find that it's called the law in cases of jealousy. That's what's going on here. The law 
in cases of jealousy. And then verse 29 gives us two, uh, perhaps, scenarios. Perhaps number one, when a wife, though under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself. Perhaps number two, when the spirit of jealousy comes over a man and he is jealous of his wife. And so actually, the issue is not settled. There is a suspicion that is floating around and can't be resolved. And so what should we do then? Now here is where I think we most have to wrestle with the question of how do we read a chapter like Numbers chapter 5? I've already mentioned there are plenty of people who would love to dismiss this as mere superstition. But you know as well as I do, there are people that would love to paint this as something far more dangerous. The worst kind of superstition, a, a spiritual conspiracy in disguise. You know, one more ploy, just one more way to keep the powerful in power and another way to put women in their place. I don't have to imagine the arguments for you. One read through this chapter, you know that this is the kind of text that could gather a protest on most any college campus. And you know the things that people will say about this sort of thing. They'll tell you that this, you know, is exactly what you should expect from any abusive, patriarchal, ancient culture. Don't be surprised when you read Numbers 5, they'll tell you. We always knew it was like that, didn't we? And now here's the proof. They will tell you that this is just the reason that the Bible can't be trusted. That you can't look at it as anything more than some vain historical curiosity. It, it shows us only what people used to do and never what we ought to do now, they'll say. Now, what is a Christian to say to such things? How can we answer this charge that Numbers chapter 5 is inherently misogynistic? How can we answer the idea that because of Numbers chapter 5, Judaism, and because of Judaism, Christianity is evil and outdated? What do we say to such things? Well, quite frankly, we don't say much. We don't say much because we don't have to. Charles Spurgeon, I think, put it best. He said, the answer to every objection against the Bible is the Bible. He meant, when you come into things that are uh, unclear, things that are difficult, what you need to do is simply slow down and read what God is actually telling his people. The best way to defend the Bible is to read what the Bible is actually telling us, not what those outside want you to think that the Bible is telling us. When you do that, the very first thing you notice about this passage is that this text is incredibly detailed, almost unnecessarily detailed. Elements are repeated two or three times. The, uh, the situation is looked at from different angles. We almost want to say, couldn't this be summarized in a few verses? I mean, restitution of the wrong, uh, cutting out those who are unclean, that's dealt with in four verses. But here we have 21 to deal with this suspicious thing. Why is there so much detail? Think about all of the other rites and the rituals that form the backbone of Jewish religious life. Think about circumcision. Think about the annual Feast of Tabernacles. Think about the morning and the evening worship in the temple of the Lord. Did you ever notice that in most of those services, we get a general instruction for what ought to happen, but never specific details on what needs to be said and how it needs to be prayed and how you need to move and what you need to do? The 
it ever occur to you that we have nowhere in God's word, nowhere in scriptures, an example uh, of an order of service for a marriage or for a funeral or for even a baptism. We aren't given that sort of detail, and yet here, when it comes to suspicions eating away at this couple, the text of Scripture seems to go into slow motion. Here, we are told exactly what to bring. The amount of of barley meal, and, and don't put any oil on it, no frankincense on it. We're told what kind of vessel the priest is to use, we're we're told who has to hold this offering and at what point in the ceremony we are told where they are to stand in the presence of the Lord. We're told exactly what the priest has to say to the word and how the woman is to respond to it. We are told exactly what to expect when the thing is all over. What does it show you? It shows you that the Lord is forcing his people to slow down and take a breather. He's telling them that when jealousy rears its ugly head in the home, things have to be done by the book. There's a procedure. There's a process. I don't think I have to imagine for you either how it might have gone if the Lord had left this issue unaddressed. I don't have to imagine it for you because some of you have probably lived it. You've lived in in a home, in a marriage with suspicions of your own. You've lived in a marriage with suspicions against you, and you know the pain, and you know the fear, and you know the anxiety that gets stirred up in those things, and it doesn't matter whether they're true or not. And you know the desperation to get to the bottom of the whole thing. Perhaps you know, or perhaps you have a friend who knows, the way that these situations can go wrong very quickly. How quickly suspicion can turn into anger, and anger can turn into something else. So here's your first indication that this is not some way to marginalize women. It is that the Lord gives a process. He gives a deliberate, intentional, controlled, and scripted process to handle what is very often uncontrolled and very often unpredictable. Calvin said, if the Lord had left it to the whim of most husbands, it would be like putting a sword into the hand of a madman. And yet he has not. He has said, this is how you do it. This is how you handle it. This is what must be done. There's a process here. And within that process, the Lord is telling his people that he is the one who will handle the judgment. He's the one who sees what cannot be seen. He's the one who will dole out the punishment. He's the one who will uphold the innocent. And in the meantime, what his people need to do is to trust that he can be trusted. There's a difference here between what these verses show us and what skeptics expect from the God of the Bible. A very important distinction. There are many critics of Scripture who will read this text, and they'll point out that there are similarities here with what historians often call a trial by ordeal. You've probably heard of these things. A trial by ordeal was common in many cultures, many ancient cultures all around the world, right up until about a few hundred years ago, and I wouldn't be surprised if they're still practiced in many places. In a trial by ordeal, you have someone who's been accused of some crime, And their guilt or their innocence is judged by making them pass through some affliction, some ordeal. 
some trauma, really. If they come out on the other side unharmed, well, they are proved to have been innocent. And if they are maimed or if they are killed in the process, well, then they must have been guilty. You see it all the time. You see it in many cultures. In ancient Iran, someone accused of breaking a contract would often have molten lead poured on his chest to see if he was harmed by it. In Africa, the accused had to reach into a pot of boiling oil and pull out a stone without being burned. And yes, in England, just as Monty Python made famous, women who were accused of witchcraft were actually thrown into water to see if they floated. On and on it went. The accused person, first of all, was assumed to be guilty, and then they were made to drink poison, and they were made to walk on fire, they were made to be dragged underwater, they were made to undergo some difficult and dangerous ordeal to see whether the gods or the fates would intervene to see if they would prove them innocent. But among God's people, this process is different. Different in a few important ways. For one, in God's trial, the process itself was physically harmless. You notice that the woman is not made to drink poison. She's not given acid or, or, or some concoction that's going to rot her flesh from the inside out. She was given water. It was water taken from uh, most likely the holy place before the Lord, the bronze basin that was outside the tabernacle, and to that water was added a, mixed, uh, a mixture of dust from the presence of God just from the floor of the tabernacle, just regular old floor dirt, and then ink from a scroll. I don't want to make light of the situation. It, it probably tasted absolutely terrible. Uh, and then her hair was unbound in the presence of the Lord. That was a sign that the God who sees what is done is secret, knows all things. And so the whole process probably left her feeling exposed. Might have left her feeling anxious. It's also true that if she was guilty, she was probably terrified. Even if she wasn't guilty, she was probably shaken up. But at every turn, what you notice is that from the process itself, she had nothing to fear. It was difficult, maybe embarrassing, but it was harmless. Notice also that in this passage, the guilt of the woman is never assumed. In fact, we hear it reported several times in different ways. Verse 14, if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he's jealous of his wife who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he's jealous of his wife though she has not defiled herself, the question is left genuinely open. It could be either. The case is not decided uh, before the Lord passes his judgment. In fact, if this was a case of clear-cut guilt, the law already tells us what to do about that. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, says that adultery is met with execution. It says both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. But what you notice when you read to this passage is that the word adulteress never shows up. This is about dealing with a suspicion. And the guilt of the woman is never assumed. The priest says the same thing, and he makes the pronouncement. He says that she will be free if she is innocent, and she will be cursed if she's guilty. Now, she was guilty. The curse was essentially childlessness. The terms that refer to her belly 
uh, and her thigh were probably euphemisms. The Jewish commentators say that in the organ with which she sinned, she will be afflicted. Again, that's not a small punishment. Especially in the ancient world, childlessness was a catastrophe. Socially, it was unthinkable. It was practically shameful. Many people in even the Israelite society would draw a straight line between childlessness and the judgment of God. So it's not a small matter that, that this curse if it came true, the Lord afflicted this woman with barrenness. But it also means that if she was guilty, that is where the punishment ended. Verse 31, it says, The man shall be free from iniquity, but the woman shall bear her iniquity. That seems distasteful to modern ears, but what it means is that's the end of the matter. It means that the community has no further part in imposing mob justice. It means that when the Lord has passed judgment, there's nothing else that the husband is supposed to do. He's not supposed to drag her back to the courts to have another suit against her. He's not to hand her over to the priest so that she can be executed. There was nothing ma magical in the water. There was nothing inherently harmful or superstitious. There was instead a single individual standing in guilt or innocence before the presence of God's holiness. And at the end, the Lord says, she will bear her iniquity because the Lord will deal with the situation himself. Now, at the end of the ordeal, the Lord is telling his people that he is the one who can be trusted. He is the one who will deal with our sins, and he is the one who will deal with those who sin against us. And here's where we need to bring the application home for each of us. This this is another text that, as Christians, we no longer apply directly. If a couple comes to me for pastoral counseling and they have suspicions, nobody's drinking anything. Right? That's not how we do things anymore, and not because it's all just superstition. We don't do things that way anymore because the Lord no longer works that way. He no longer gives us dusty water and audible curses to convince us that our sins will be dealt with. Instead, he gives us bread and a cup. Instead, he gives us promises proclaimed at a table of fellowship. Instead, the Lord gives us a meal to remember that all the curses that we deserve have already been paid by somebody else. And by the way, at his table, he also gives us a reminder that he sees. It's important, isn't it, that Paul says, as often as we eat and drink this cup, we proclaim his death until he comes. The Lord who sees in secret, the Lord who judges all, the Lord who knows all the sins that we've committed and all the sins that have been committed against us, the judge of all the earth will come back to do what is right. He observes all of our cheating and all the ways that we've been cheated. He observes all the harm that we have given and all the harm that we have incurred. We, he observes all the ways that we've been berated or excluded. And he gives us the promise that one day that very same judge who came to bear our curses will also return to set things right. And this isn't superstition. This is a reminder that the Lord sees, that the Lord knows, that the Lord judges, 
And at the table of the Lord, it's also a reminder that he's the one who gives grace. Lord knows we're all of us guilty of many things that other people don't know about. Hidden sins that somebody else might suspect, but nobody really knows. And how can those things be rectified? How can that guilt be paid? How can that sin be dealt with? Well, the Lord sends his son as a sacrifice. The ram of atonement pictured in this passage. The lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And it's true that if we are in Christ, it means that we have to live like we're in Christ. He calls us to be holy. He calls us to treat one another fairly. He calls us to trust in him. But he also reminds us that in Christ Jesus, the penalty is paid. And that in him, we are welcome. And in him, we can find peace. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord and God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would give us an understanding of it. And much more, we pray that you would give us faith in our Lord Jesus because of it. Help us to look to him. Help us to proclaim his death until he returns. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.